The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Rivian, Volvo, Hertz, and GM electrified the car industry this week, and Facebook went dark. Tune in as our columnists dissect the most important financial stories of the week. Welcome to The Views Room. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, the financial commentary arm of Reuters News, coming to you from Zurich, Switzerland. This week, I rang up our global car nerd, Anthony Curry, down in Melbourne to have him string together a few biggest stories from the global automotive industry. Rivian, the truck maker in which Ford and Amazon are backers, landed its IPO prospectus. Volvo kicked off plans to return to the public equity markets. Hertz, the car rental company, hired a former Ford executive as its latest and albeit interim CEO. And General Motors got a badge of approval from Engine Number no. 1, the climate activist fund that barged its way under the ExxonMobil boardroom last year. What binds all this together, obviously, is the transition from the internal combustion engine to electric vehicles. After that, Richard Beals in New York and Gina Chan in Washington chew over the global outage of Facebook sites, including WhatsApp and Instagram, earlier this week. It's been a crummy week for Mark Zuckerberg, for sure. And as my colleagues suggest, things may get even crummier. Give a listen. Okay, so Anthony, I wanted to check in with you because we've had a whole bunch of disparate bits of news from around the world, uh, all related to electronic vehicles or cars of the future. So let's let's do a little roundup. One of the more interesting ones, which you've written about and we've talked about on the show, is is Rivian, which is the electronic or electric truck vehicle manufacturer, also doing delivery vans for Amazon. Just give me a quick heads up on what's going on with that IPO because it's a pretty big number. Yeah, it is. So I mean, they, the number first came out seventy to eighty billion dollars for a company that has yet to produce a vehicle, which we're kind of getting used to. We've seen that in some other SPACs before. Rivian um, filed confidentially for an IPO in the US in August, which means it didn't have to release anything. Um, but it it finally um, publicised its um, IPO filing last week. So we got a few more details on some numbers and on some of the details of of, uh, of its deal with Amazon as well. So that sort of adds to the how on earth are you going to get to $80 billion valuation for a company that has yet to produce a single car? Yeah, and there's also, I would note, one of our most popular stories this week. So people are really keen to know more about this business. Yeah, it's I, I you know I think there's so much money going into this. We're seeing it over in Asia as well. A lot of the um, the Asian car makers are now looking to raise money on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, having already listed in New York. So I mean I think around the world there's a desire to see what's going on and who's doing what with electric vehicles. And look, Rivian has made a really good name for itself. I think in large part, and it's probably a bit unfair on the business overall, but in large part it's made a big name for two reasons. Firstly it eschewed the SPAC route for going public. And secondly, it's got some really well-known heavy-hitting investors who've so far plowed in about $10.5 billion since early 2019. And in that, it's got Ford, which, of course, is also creating an electric truck in its F-150. So it's both a competitor and an investor. Um, You've got T. Rowe Price, you've got BlackRock, and you've got Amazon, which is an investor as well as putting in an order for 100,000 delivery trucks. So it's... Yeah, there's a lot you've got of all the bold faced names, all yeah. the bold faced names in the business. Now, you've also got another IPO uh, apparently coming in Europe, which is the, uh, the I guess, the reappearance of Volvo uh, as a public company being spun off or, or yep. taken public by its owner, which is, uh, is it a, Ch- a Chinese Geely? Um, yeah. What's what's going on there? Well, I mean, th- th- this has been 
on and off for a couple of years. The founder, Li Shufu, has been talking about it for a while. I think it was in 2018, 2019. They were talking about doing one at a valuation of 30 billion US dollars. Didn't get anywhere. Everyone thought it was a bit crazy. This time around, it's trying to get a, a valuation of around 25 billion or so, which is not too far shy, of course, of that number that everyone poo-pooed a couple of years ago. But things have progressed since then. Geely is a much better name now. The people are sort of looking at, at Li Shifu and thinking, actually, you've got some interesting ideas here. You know, the Polestar vehicle has been out there a lot as well recently. I think that the, they were doing a deal. So, you know, mm-hmm. Volvo has sort of cemented its place within both within the empire and within the, the ability to get electric vehicles produced. In fact, I, I did once think about doing a, doing a story saying that, that Musk should buy Volvo for the expertise, but valuations kind of went Musk's way in the end and that never went anywhere but yeah well, it would be a drop in the bucket for for Tesla of course oh, I mean, you know he could he could, he could pick this up with you know his next pay stub probably given how much he's getting of his 10-year bonus coming through these days yeah now General Motors is kind of interesting they they got an endorsement this week from engine one these were the shareholder activists who managed to put a couple of people on the board of Exxon Mobil mm. so they're very they're climate activist focused if you will but they came out and sort of they gave a good job guys to General Motors now uh, yeah. what, what was your read on that to be uncharitable, one of my first reactions was this is going from the sublime to the ridiculous for engine one so you go after the biggest most recalcitrant anti-climate actor out there in ExxonMobil. You manage, having never been heard of before, the company, Engine One, you manage to get, in the end, four people on the board after this company has just managed to push investors to the side. Every year there's a climate, a climate-based resolution on the docket at an annual meeting, and every year they either get it voted down, get the SEC to kick it off, or it gets voted through and, and Exxon comes up with some, you know, mealy mouth way of, of, of giving investors a bit of what they want. Engine One finally got something done. It's amazing. So you thought, OK, what are they going to do next? Let's see who they go after next. They're really going to make a big difference. And they choose to endorse General Motors, which is fine. I, General Motors, I think, is doing a fine job on electric vehicles. But I don't see the point from an investment perspective of what I they're doing. It's, you could it's make very the well case standing that, saying, yes, let me put money in. But but you could also make the case that they're sort of saying, look, we're, we're, we're good cop and bad cop. And so good cop here, we sort of say, well done, guys, we're supporting you. Um, and everyone writes about it in their headlines all over the world that Engine One endorses them. And it's sort of, I guess you could say, instead of just being one trick pony known for being the bad cop that got a bunch of people on the board of ExxonMobil, and really, let's face it, they just galvanize what was already discontent yep. among the shareholder base. I mean, this might be, that might be their play. Maybe. And look, there's, and there's, there's nothing wrong with n- not always being really active in a stock, right? But I think you know, once you come out as what is clearly a climate activist, you then go into a company which has been for years making the case for why it should be seen as a better investment than it has been for years. In fact, it would it, for the last couple, few last few years, it's traded at a worse multiple than Ford, even though Ford has been having its own troubles, even though GM is far more advanced on batteries, autonomous vehicles and everything, has better earnings. Engine One is not going to change any of that, I don't think. I think the way the stock reacted, which was minimally on this news, 
is a good example. I mean, it doesn't matter how much the stake they take. They take like a one third of a percentage point sure. interest in this, which is, you know, we know activists don't need to take much. But it's not like it, Warren Buffett coming in and buying a stake and the stock no, goes up. by Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's for sure. But there's, Speaking there's of, also, can I just bring yeah. you to Ford? You mentioned Ford. Mark Fields, who I think you and I met when he was over. We bumped into him, I'd say on the street. It was on the street inside Ford's complex outside of, of Detroit back in 2006, just after he'd moved back to take over as head of North America. We met him a couple other times when we went up to Detroit, and I'd met him at some of the auto shows. And now he pops up this week as the temporary CEO of Hertz, the, uh, yeah. the once bankrupt, now quite large by market cap terms, rental car company. How do you read that in terms of this whole world of electronic vehicles and mobility as a service? Yeah, I think he's actually a pretty good pick. I mean, why he's interim CEO and why they're replacing the current interim CEO with another interim CEO and not saying that they're still on the search for a permanent CEO is odd. But in terms of, of, of fields, so he, he got a bad rap at the end of his three-year stint as CEO of Ford because the stock price cratered. But then the new guy took over, the stock price didn't recover. And it shows so it certainly showed to me that just replacing the CEO doesn't always change anything. And Ford had some structural problems even after its pretty good escape away from having to go into bankruptcy. It didn't have to go into it like GM and Chrysler did in the financial crisis. So he did a really good job of getting Ford to think about mobility properly. He did a really good job of investing in some of the, uh, some of the earlier companies in both mobility, uh, electric vehicles, and uh, autonomous vehicles. I mean, not not they weren't always as good at doing it as as GM, but you know he got them in there early. He's also a pretty good, pretty good turnaround artist. He was in charge of he was the CEO of Mazda when Ford had a big stake in Mazda years ago, and he turned them around. And as I said, yeah, he took over as head of North America for Ford in 2006 and played a very big Big role in keeping them out of bankruptcy. So I think you know, if, if you're hurt, you think this is a really good person to have. He joined the board a few months ago. Now he's interim CEO. I'd still love clarification on what that all means. But yeah. in general, yeah, I mean, Hertz is not a car maker, fine, but you know, it's going to be at the heart of, unless it screws it up, it'll be at the heart of how to think about the next phase of mobility and electric vehicles and rent car rentals, however that shapes up by the hour, by robo taxis, whatever. Yeah, they got uh, some, there's some sort of play there. There's some yeah. sort of play inside there. And I guess it's just kind of interesting to see a guy going from one of the big OEMs to, or having been a, a, yeah. one of the. And don't CEOs forget, Ford used to own Hertz. It's about the only yeah, thing. Yeah, I, I remember that. that. <laughs> The only thing that Ford owned, I think, Fields never ran because <laughs> uh, he right. went all over the place and, and 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 ran a lot of their different businesses, including Volvo. Right. So anything else on your plate? I guess you you uh, you and I have one commonality this week. We both managed to write about Greta Thunberg in, in our piece. Yes. Well, I, I used I used her as a peg and, and you went full throttle to put her into a, a really good piece about um, what she can do to do more than just, as she said, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I was actually in Milan last week for the uh, pre-cop uh, where she she made these remarks. And before the pre-cop, there was sort of a Youth for Climate event. And it was it was amazing. She's quite uh, extraordinary at getting headlines, that's for sure. And so getting up there and kind of putting something uh, a bit dispiriting into the the punch bowl, as it were, with her blah, blah, blah speech, just yeah. as every, you know, Mario Draghi and other leaders were about to get up and, and speak over the next couple of days was quite fascinating. But you've got a guy out there named Twiggy. Yes. Who, uh, yes. Who seems Great to be name. taking, who's going from blah, blah, blah to action. Tell me about that. His real name is Andrew Forrest, and he got nicknamed Twiggy at school. Go work that one out. Ho, ho, ho. And uh, he is the founder and currently the chairman of Fortescue Metals, which is like the fourth largest iron ore 
producer in the world. And rather surprisingly, I mean, okay, if you go, go back over the past year, you'll see it's not so surprising, but it's surprising in general to see a mining magnate pretty much on the same page as a teenage climate activist. So what he's done this this week, he's, he's done a few things over the past few months, actually, but, but this week he actually was speaking at, at a Reuters impact summit and said, look, net zero sounds great, doesn't it? But unfortunately, and it's net zero that she was talking about, of course, last week in Milan saying it's blah, blah, blah. But he went beyond blah, blah, blah and said net zero, net zero isn't just blah, blah, blah. It's a lie. Now, it's a little bit harsh, but he's basically right. The problem with net zero, especially if you have a 2050 target on it, is it makes too many people, not everyone, but too many people think net zero is something we should reach in 2050 or not until 2050. So we can put things off or we can come up December with... December 31st, 2049 is the actual deadline. Yeah, that's, to get it all that's, done. On that's that when it's like being a student getting your essay done or dare I say it, a, a journalist, uh, by no means you or me, of course, Rob, uh, being late with their deadline. But there are far too many companies and governments who are looking at net zero 2050 as firstly, I don't have to do anything just now. And secondly, if I can come up with something that allows me to do business as usual, I will. And he cited carbon capture and storage, which some of the oil and gas companies are, are saying, we'll use this when it's finally ready, which it might never be. But in the meantime, we'll increase production and increase. But he's emissions. a hydrogen bull, right? So he's, sort he's of a, a huge hydrogen bull. And there are problems hydrogen. with that too. Green, Yes, only green hydrogen. He was dismissing blue hydrogen and grey hydrogen, which is where you either try and capture, the blue is where you capture and store the carbon, uh, and grey is where you don't bother, you just, you know, use coal. Right, and and green is you're using renewable resources to, yes. to basically. Yeah, he's generally thinking, one of, his, one of his big projects at the moment is to try and get the Congo River long-term, decades-long long project that never happened to get hydroelectric dams built. Uh, he's trying to shift that into becoming a great big hub for green hydrogen. And you know, it's going to be hard work. They've been working on it for 10 years. Then again, carbon capture has been out there for 20 years plus and got nowhere. But I think hydrogen has the advantage of probably being something that you can replicate at scale, whereas carbon capture, I think, and I'm not a scientist, so I could be corrected on this, but generally has to be site specific. So you have to go in each time and work out, hang on, what do we do with this one? Can this store the same as that one? Probably not. What do we do about it? Oh, it leaks. Never mind. Um, so his idea, at least, is probably more scalable, still requires a lot of money, still requires a lot of faith. But also, he's a billionaire who, who's the chairman and biggest shareholder of a massive miner. And he's putting his money where his mouth is. And his mouth is saying some really good things. So, you know, welcome yeah, to... Well, yeah, yeah, well, good. Blah, 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 or what. It, at least it gets people trying to go from, you know, just talking to action. I suppose that's good. But uh, as you know, I wrote, I suggested that she that she and her cohorts, Greta and her co cohorts, start coming up with actually more action along the lines of what Twiggy's doing. But uh, putting all this stuff into place, good luck. Exactly. Yeah, it takes a You need to be pragmatic as well as idealistic. And, and someone like Twiggy might be better placed. But you're right. I mean, Greta is now at a stage where you know, she's 18 and it's great having someone who is leading youth into thinking about this and getting out there. But at some stage, you, you it's a you know, go go back to what we were talking about earlier about, about shareholder activism. At some point, you kind of want to get out there and do something rather than just talk. Anyway, thank you on that, Anthony. Have sure. a good rest of your week. You too. Okay, so now we turn to Facebook. This is Richard Beals in New York and I'm here with Gina Chon, who's in Washington. Hi, Gina. It feels like 
Uh, Mark Zuckerberg's social network company is now besieged on several fronts, if that's a metaphor that quite works, I'm not sure. Let's start with these revelations about the company's internal research on harmful effects it might have, and shall we say the curated version of that that it, it has made public in the past. We've got a whistleblower, quite a persuasive one, who's taken the lid off some of that. T tell us about that. Yeah, it's been amazing to see the rollout of this. First, this woman, Frances Haugen, who was a product manager at the company, started as an anonymous source for a Wall Street Journal investigation where thousands of pages of documents uh, came out that showed, as you say, that Facebook was aware, for example, that its Instagram unit was harmful to the mental health of teenage girls, but basically did nothing about it. Other instances, it appeared that the company put a profit over reining in hate speech or misinformation or, or other kinds of toxic content. So that appeared in the journal over the course of several days. And then she revealed herself on the popular 60 Minutes news show. And that right. made a that big was the weekend, splash. Right? Yeah. Yes. And then two days later, she testified before the Senate in very articulate manner and it's been <laughs> quite a bad week for for Facebook. I mean it's a it's an interesting issue and a worrying issue but interesting in the sense that you know Facebook and other other tech companies who have con post content or allow content to be posted on their platforms are not really regulated except in sort of extreme content cases as to what can appear there. In fact, they're insulated from it and not to get into all the legal nitty gritty of that. It, it does kind of raise the question, and I'm sure that's what the, the, the I think it is what the senators were getting at in, in that particular hearing. You know, what what should be done? Should there be regulation? And is, is that because of this whistleblower? Do you think that's become more likely in some sort of concrete step change way? Yeah, they did seem to indicate that this was a bit of a game changer, even though we've heard for years now various ways that Facebook has mishandled user data and and other scandals that they've been under. But it seemed to all coalesce around this whistleblower, just given the documents she had to back up her claims. And so they kept talking about, you know, it's time to get to work. And one of the senators, you know, said Mark Zuckerberg, your days of like exploiting, you know, children and all this stuff were over. Um, we'll <laughs> see if that, you know, actually happens. But she was, you know, one of the main suggestions she actually had was that the U.S. should create like a, a dedicated technology regulator, which, you know, as you say, we don't have now. They're, they don't really receive day to day oversight. Right, and that's interesting because there's lots of regulatory areas to think about here. Another, you know, Mark Zuckerberg had a bad week this week. The entire Facebook edifice, so the Facebook site, the Instagram site, and the WhatsApp service, messaging service, all went down for quite a long time, six hours or so on Monday. And for some people on Facebook, it's you miss a family photo for six hours. That may not be a big deal. But for some people, some companies, it's their way to reach customers. And in some countries, WhatsApp is kind of the de facto means of communication for a lot of people. I mean, again, they don't have to use those things. They're free services, so it's kind of hard to argue that, that uptime is something people are paying for in any way, but it still raises the question about whether some of these technology services, not just Facebook, are sort of too important now to be left to 
just a private company on its own. Yeah, well, I think, you know, when you raise those points in your piece, that is really something that is on policymakers' mind because it really crystallized how much, particularly at least in the United States, how many small businesses use Facebook, like they don't even have their own websites anymore. Um, You know, around the world, there's government officials, use WhatsApp to communicate. And so, as you say, there are alternative services for a lot of these things, but because so many people are dependent on this one company, you know, they have 3.5 billion monthly active users on their family and platform. So that's a lot of people to disrupt. And there's a, there's a whole nother angle of this, which is a longer running saga. And to me, it's kind of, well, it certainly requires looking at it in a completely different way from what we just discussed. It may be almost regulating the opposite, which is this notion that these are anti-competitive companies, not monopolies, but that that some of their behavior is anti-competitive, excluding, you know, upstart businesses or buying them and closing them down that might otherwise compete with them and things like that. It's kind of the opposite of thinking about actually Facebook's a utility, we should regulate it that way. It's more, you know, it shouldn't be a utility and it's trying to squash some of this competition. But that's a long running saga and that isn't going away either, right? Yeah, Facebook actually recently filed another motion to dismiss the Federal Trade Commission's amended complaint that um, a judge had sort of shot down as not being fully argued to his satisfaction. So he basically gave the agency another shot. And so we'll see what the judge says in this next round. But, But it's, as you say, one that will probably go back and forth for a while. So there's at least three fronts there I think we can probably agree it's not the the greatest moment for Mark Zuckerberg and he's got a lot of work to do. Thanks very much, Gina. Thanks. That's our show for this week. Thanks to our producer, Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong, and to you, dear listener, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fixes. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Bye-bye.